right, section six is the theory of compensation as regards to the work people dispensed by machinery. The compensation theory with regards to workers displaced by machinery. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, holy so crap, I highlighted a lot of stuff. Yeah. In there, yeah. So here's 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 where we're going to. We we knew it going into it. We had to know it going into it. Chapter fifteen's a bear. Chapter yeah. fifteen is large, and and you have now officially been through two hours of us. Oh, we'll have to edit a little bit. Really, really going into <laughs> chapter fifteen. Uh, the, we we we're halfway through though. Exactly. We are we are halfway through. We are we are there. We'll go less with the second half. Exactly. The second half will be more concise. More concise, hopefully. Okay. So he says the real facts, which are travested by the optimism of the economists, are as follows. The laborers, when driven out of the workshop by the machinery, are thrown upon the labor market and there add to the number of workmen at the disposal of the capitalists. So that's, that's getting, you know, redundant, but you notice the, the uh, um, enactment there. Uh, let's see. It is undoubted that the fact that machinery as such is not responsible for setting free the workmen from the means of subsistence. It cheapens and increases the production of the branch which it seizes on and first makes no change to the mass of the means of subsistence. Um, I'm going to skip. I am going to start speeding up here because this is when it starts getting redundant. Uh, thus he saves himself from further puzzling the brain. What is more, implicitly declares his opponent to be stupid enough to contend against not the capitalist employment of the machinery, but the machinery of himself. So he was saying when the, the, the workman says, no, these machines, they're terrible. He's he's going on. I think this is what you were talking about when we were saying we're not syndicalists. Yes. Um, where he's saying, you know, oh, haha, you're just against the machines, you idiot. Yeah. Um, I didn't highlight much out of there, so I don't know if there's something you want to look at. Not particularly. No, again, okay. it, it's the theory that there, there are two kind of schools that you can take this from, and there's the theory that machines in general are evil. And there is a... There is... A, and again, when we say machines, the, this whole there's a concept that this whole concept on its face is is just evil, carte blanche, no debating it. Yeah. And there is a there's a very there's a significant group of Marxists that, that kind of will hold that theory. That's there there's a camp that would think that way. Yeah. yeah. Um. Then uh, there's there's a bigger camp of anarchists that'll do that. There's too. a bigger camp of anarchists that'll do that. Uh, I tend to you know if you again you want to go to I, I mean Lenin fully embraced the concept of industrialization. Yeah. I mean, it was a oh, necessary... Yeah. And, and so I think that's kind of going to be one of the... There is a point where rubber hits the road. If you want to live in your fantasy world, there there, there is fantasy worlds. And, and the Luddite movement, the we're going to get rid of all the machines, that's one way to look at it. I, I don't think that's a practical way forward, and I don't think that's the way that, that, that we're going to go forward in any, any sense. You need to acknowledge... That the machines are serving a purpose, they're serving the wrong interests right now, and we need to do something about that, but but not yeah. break all the machines is not the answer. Yeah, uh, I'm going to talk about a little bit here. Um, again, we'll get into Lenin. Yes. But something Marx talks about is the dissipation of the state. Uh, you get rid of class but with a dictatorship of the proletariat, mm -hmm. because right now we're under a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, and this yes. is to counter that. You can't have no dictatorship unless there's no class. So you get a dictatorship of the proletariat, and over time, through some reforms, that dissolves into no state. Now, a lot of anarchists or people like that think that means no formal state. But as long as you have society, you must have a formal state to maintain the society. When Marx said no state, he meant no class. Nobody has power over the other people. The other actors, and this makes things, I mean, by nature, have to be fully democratic, where someone will have a class of power, mm -hmm. at least social. 
Um, so, you know, I mean, you would still have elected leaders and stuff like that, but they wouldn't have a class. They wouldn't have any more money. They wouldn't have any power over anybody unelected. All they would do is they would focus on the state needs distribution administration and they would execute it and they would have enough power where someone goes out of line with the majority rule that they would enforce that. But nothing is outside of what the majority is. And the majority of people could pull that person back at any time. They could essentially unelect them on mm-hmm. a whim, which is something consistently true across socialist states. I mean, you look at that in Cuba now. They can unelect anyone, anytime. Um, DPRK can unelect anyone, anytime with 50% vote. I mean, and, and people don't realize that. I mean, think about that. We could just fucking unelect Trump tomorrow if 50% of us said to. And less than 50% of people voted. I was about to say, I was like, wouldn't be too hard. Just the election results would get us there. But yeah. yeah. But we don't have that here. So, you know, I mean, that gives power to the worker. But also, you know, without the money, without the social influence, without the fame. Yeah. Other than the fame, just, you know, unavoidable. Um, so I think society is a good thing. I mean, it lets us live longer, lets us provide for each other, lets us divide labor in a way that doesn't necessarily have to alienate it mm-hmm. un- until the commodity market's brought in. Um, and even some commodities are exchanged in, in socialism. They just can't be the, you know, you can't have private property and make someone else make you the, the commodities for you to profit off of. Yep. Um, and you can't hoard very much for the commodities. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think society's good. So I, I completely agree. You know, no Luddites, cynicalism, that... that that's not my gig. Nope. <laughs> nope. 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 Um, so exploitation of the workman in the machine is therefore with him identical with the exploitation of the machine by the workman. Whoever therefore exposes the real state of things in the capitalist employment of machinery is against its employment in any way and is the enemy of social progress. This is Mark being sarcastic. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Yeah. The exactly thing we just talked about. the reasoning about by Bill Sykes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I love this. If you abolish the knife, you hurtle us back into the depths of barbarism. He's... <laughs> This is the last quote. I skipped a few sentences there, but I just love that quote. Yeah, no. Okay, I'm going to read this because this is important. Gentlemen of the jury, no doubt the throat of this commercial traveler has been cut. But that is not my fault. It is the fault of the knife. Must we, for such a temporary inconvenience, abolish the use of the knife? Consider, where would agriculture and trade be without the knife? It is not as salutatory in surgery as it is in skilled anatomy. Uh, And a wheeling assistant at the festive table. If you abolish the knife, you hurl us back. Again, it's a guy who just slit a guy's throat saying, but you can't get rid of knives. Knives are good. You, yeah. you, you heathen. Again, yeah. It's, it's a, it's again, it's Mark's spicing up what has, what is a very technical chapter. Yeah. Um, and then later on in this last thing, I'll read from this section. The immediate result of machinery is to augment surplus value and the massive products, which surplus value is embodied uh-huh. and as the substances consumed by the capitalists and their dependents become more plentiful. So too do these orders of society. Their growing wealth and the relatively diminished number of workmen required to produce the necessities of life beget simultaneously with the rise of new and luxurious wants, the means of satisfying those wants. A large portion of the produce of society is changed into surplus produce, and a large part of the surplus produce is applied for consumption in the multiplicity of refined shapes. In other words, the production of luxuries increases. The refined and varied forms of the product are also due to new relations in the markets of the world. Relations that are created by the modern industry, not only greater in quantity from the former articles of luxury exchange and home products, but to a greater mass of foreign raw materials, ingredients, da, da, da. So he's, he's kind of laying the foundations of imperialism. Yes. We're going to run out of, of the stuff we want because we want more and more luxury. we got to suck it off somewhere else. And as machinery improves, we're going to get more luxuries. And most of those luxuries are going to go to the ruling class. Yes. Uh, ruling class are going to be able to afford 
$100 stakes that on a technical basis, if you don't know your difference in stakes, are not much different from something from 9 bucks you get from Save-A-Lot. But they're $100 stakes for them, and they will have entire cows cut up just to hand-pick these stakes in the morning, and a good chunk of them will go bad before they get to you. And so now we've created cows to kill them and make waste. We've overproduced produce so we can be extra picky with it to make waste. And you don't get the extra picky top-of-the-line produce. You get the standard stuff thrown in a grocery store. There are luxurious produces and steaks for wealthy people that you don't get to see. And there is an enormous amount of waste because of it. But we'll get that in fully automated gay luxury social (laughs) communism. Come on. We're going to get there. After the reparations are paid. After the reparations are paid. And with a sustainable amount of consumption. uh, so the 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 line the only the other part I like in here is this because again this this hits on capital uh, uh, expenditures things like that you know heavy 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 public works yeah so the increase in the means of production and subsistence this is also explaining the side effects of capitalism that people point to as these great great things and and again just kind of what's the reason so the increase in means of production and subsistence accompanied by a relative diminution diminution in the number of workers provides the impulse for an extension of work that can only bear fruit in the distant future. So again, you've got to the point, you've hit that, I've got more money than God, I can't spend it all. Well, what do I do now? Think space! Let's do space. <laughs> so you, you get to that point where you've, you've met all of your needs and you're out of people, well, what do we do now? Let's do the weird future shit. Uh, and that's uh, uh, his examples are canals, docks, bridges, tunnels, so on. Entirely new branches of production that create entirely new fields of labor. They're also formed as a direct result either of machinery or the general industrial changes brought about uh, by it. But the place occupied by these branches in total production is far from important, even in the most developed countries. The number of workers they employ is directly proportional to the demand created by the industries for the crudest form of manual labor. Chief industries of this kind at present are gas works, telegraphy, which in modern terms is like telecommunications, any, any satellites, all of that kind of stuff, uh, photography, steam navigation, and railway. So again, this was a very, for, for Marx... Oil pipelines. Exactly. For Marx, this was a very small part of the labor pool. Yeah. Uh, and, and the way he talks about it is kind of insignificant. I feel like it is, is this well, is one of those sections where you're ignoring... I think a, a, a very legitimate means of, of employment, of, of expending capital in a productive way, mm-hmm. which is public. You can. I mean, we, we did it. We, we've shown that that's a productive way of doing it. Now, again, there are we've done it wrong a whole bunch, and there are a whole bunch of different ways that we can fuck it up. But but the concept of, of you know, we have the money, we have the capital, let's do something wild with it. You, you've seen how it, we, you know, we New Deal versioned that. Mm-hmm. And then there's the Elon Musk version of that, which is I'm going to find way, I, I'm going to do these fun sort of look chair, like, like two weeks ago when Elon Musk was going to solve the Flint water crisis until it wasn't apparently getting him enough likes on Twitter and then he just stopped out of nowhere even though he said it would take like two days and he'd fix it. Yeah, um, it's still happening, obviously. He's building his Hyperloop though where you'll be able to go from here to there in four minutes. Well, that, yeah, that's a huge improvement. That's a huge thing. You know, if I can get across Los Angeles in four minutes, that's, that's amazing. Well, why not? But it, it's not that you only get to that point once you have, it, like, you've burned everything down, pillaged it to its core, and you're you're yeah. so far ahead that it, it won't make a difference. And even think, then... Think of the resources that have to go into that. And even then, you're right, it's going to be for rich people. It's, it's going to be for... It's only going to be for rich people, and it's only going to be... It's still never going to be at the scale it should be. So... 
this you you want to what does a state need to be what does a state need to be doing these things that are super important and fundamental to a society but aren't profitable that's what we need to be doing yeah but again um, that's my couple of things on that too you touched please. on the space movement and something i want to point out there to everyone uh this space movement it's not that any of these rich people are dumb enough to think that we can colonize Mars. The resources are not there. <laughs> They're just not there, and they know nope. it. Uh, the reason for the space movement is so that they can build a technology to survive somewhere that lacks resources and has a terrible um, climate, and it's only going to house so many people. And that way, when global warming comes over and makes the world uninhabitable. All this technology they've made for surviving on Mars, they're going to use on Earth so the rich people can still live. And we're going to be out there in fucking Mad Max world if yeah. we're still alive. Yeah. And that's how it's going to go. And all the technology that also works well in space, weird how a lot of that has crossover applications that you can use for those weird industries that are also their bread and butter. Yeah. You know, it, it seems real fun when you're making a spaceship to go to Mars, but... If that also happens to make my Amazon drones more efficient, well, bully for me! I, I double dip on that side of it. Again, yeah. don't don't ever think it is for some you know human endeavor. The other thing I want to say, because you touched on uh, the New Deal and the infrastructure. Yes. Uh, the U.S., very specifically, to counter European and especially socialist progress with railway systems, mm -hmm. intentionally went out and made the interstate system at the behest of car companies. You want to talk about lobbying. Car companies lobbied for us to have interstates. That's why we don't have mass transit. Yeah, mass transit, mass public transportation in the U.S. You go to England, France, even those places have it, and it's been cut back from austerity. It's not nearly as good. There's still lots of car driving. Nobody drives cars like the United States no. because of our interstate system. And our interstate system was built to not be public transportation. Uh, so when you have to deal with a car, when like how many thousand people die in car wrecks a day? When we don't have very good public transportation, so I can live 30 minutes out of St. Louis but have to drive in because there's no public transportation to work every mm -hmm. day. Uh, when we see the excessive amounts of pollution from that, when we see toll roads, all those things, that's because some car companies lobbied up and said, hey, let's make some interstates. Mm -hmm. um, so even when it's done the, the supposed right way, a lot of that was to pressure because people saw the Soviet Union coming and they had to make something that either was close but marketed better like the interstates or was just enough to stave people off like a lot of the New Deal stuff. It wasn't because capitalism was some great thing ready to hand this out no. or, or that that was some form of liberalism that was going around. Like Keynes was doing that to uphold England's economy and like when England got the NHS that was on the backs of slavery of Indian people. They were genociding them in famines. But it was also to stave off the big socialist movements. Yep. You know, I, so this stuff is not not in liberalism. <laughs> I mean, it's not. Unless it's made as an excess for the wealthy. That's part of liberalism. The rest is pressure put on by the public in general, by socialist movements within a country, or by socialist movements from neighboring countries that put pressure on to look impressive comparatively. Yep. All right. So section seven, we're going to look at repulsion and attraction of the work people by the factory system. And this is mostly about the cotton trade. So it's I'm, super heavy in the cotton trade. I'm going to um, skip it. Except was there one chapter? 
Oh, that's still talking about the cotton trade. No, it's and again, this is one of those ones where it, if even if you go, I think to, it's too acute. I mean, I think it's worth reading. I don't think it's worth our. Purposes. Exactly, it's not. It, it you, you if this was completely cut out of the book, it does not diminish your understanding of capital. No, but if you are reading it, I would read that section. Well, I mean, yeah, a couple things I highlighted, but I just, I think when we're at two hours, it's, if we were only an hour in, I'd be reading it right now, but I, I just, I don't think it's important enough. Yeah. Uh, section eight, revolution affected and manufactured by handicrafts and domestic industry by modern industry. Yeah. Um, he talks about the overthrow of cooperation-based handicraft on the division of labor. That, I think, is a little dated. Yes. Uh, so we're going to talk about the reaction of the factory system and manufacturer and domestic industries. Uh-huh. And I'm going to jump down to the exploitation of cheap and immature labor power is carried out in a more shameless manner in modern manufacture than in the factory proper. So that's talking about the sweatshop versus yep. the factories. This is because the technical foundation of the factory system, namely the substitution of machines for muscular power and the light character of labor, is almost entirely absent in manufacture. And at the same time, women and over-young children are subjected in the most unconscionable way to the influence of poisonous and injurious substances. The exploitation of more shameless and so-called domestic industry than the manufacturers, and that because the power of resistance of labor decreases with their dissemination, because a whole series of plundering and parasites insinuate themselves between the employer and the workmen, because the domestic industry has always uh, had to compete with the factory system, or with manufacture the same branch of production, and because uh, poverty robs the workman of the conditions the most essential to his labor of space, light, and ventilation because employment becomes more and more irregular. And finally, because all of these last resorts of the masses are made redundant by modern industry and agriculture, competition for work attains its maximum. And this is the very, this is the part where, again, it is, Marx is making a pretty definitive statement that factories will beat out sweatshops. Yeah. And um, that's... Not a hundred percent how it true. works, but, but I think he's he's good at naming how horrible sweatshops are. Yes, he's he's saying <laughs> that they're again they're both horrible. He just thought that factories would win out yeah. because of their innate efficiencies, and and that that's, that doesn't negate the argument. It just is you know this was one of the areas that his prediction was not you know he's not a hundred percent thousand percent right about every single thing. Yeah. Um, so then I'm going to go down to modern manufacture. Yes. Because so. he's not going to illustrate the principles he's laid down with a few examples. <laughs> uh, so he goes on, you know, with newspapers and slaughterhouses. He says, similar excesses are practiced in bookbinding, where the victims are chiefly women, girls, and children. Mm-hmm. Young persons have to do a heavy work in the rope walks and night work in the salt mines candle manufactories and chemical works, young people are worked to death Mm -hmm. at turning the looms and silk weaving when it is not carried out by machinery. One of the most shameful and most dirty and the most worst paid kinds of labor and one in which women and young girls are by preference employed is the sorting of rags. Which sounds a little weird. It is well known in Great Britain, apart from its own immense store of rags, is the emporium for the rag trade of the whole world. They flow from Japan, from the most remote states of South America and the Canary Islands, but the chief source of their supply are Germany, France, Russia, Italy, Egypt, Turkey, Belgium, and Holland. They are used for manure Manure. and for making bed flocks, for shoddy, and they serve for the raw material of paper. The rag sorters are the medium for the spread of smallpox and other (laughs) infection diseases, and they themselves are always the first victims. Oh my god. So you're sorting through shit 
shit rags that are used yeah. for making textiles and uh, manure, apparently. Uh, <laughs> bed flocks. Don't even don't even know, what that, know what that is. is. Don't know what that <laughs> I don't is. Sorry. Don't know what that is. Trying to find out. I don't Wikipedia. Know. The, the the point is that Wikipedia that don't know. I, I I was really more worried about the small barks part. Yeah, you know, they, I mean, that this is disease ridden stuff. So that that was the part that I really wanted to, to focus on in that chapter. Um, I mean, he's basically saying something that these machines. It's it's you have this gross simultaneous effect. These machines come out here, and they make the work less valuable, uh-huh. right? Less and less valuable. So if the work's less valuable, and you can't afford the constant capital machines, and you need to get that value, you just need to pretend that value is there by putting human labor back into it, and then saving on that human labor by not having suitable facilities, or having other cheap resources where more of your value has to come from variable capital. And so that means you're doing some really nasty stuff to people yeah. in order to substitute those machines. Yeah. And that's shoving them down chimneys. Yeah. Ooh. Um and then part D is modern domestic industry, which is very much in the la- it's a it's a it's like a whole group about the lace industry. Yeah, but one thing I liked I liked about it uh, he says the long stick is used by the mistress as a stimulant for more and more as the working hours are prolonged. So talking about child labor, he says, mm-hmm. The children gradually tire and become more restless as birds towards the end of their long detention at an occupation that is monotonous, eye-straining, and exhausting from the uniformity of the posture of their body. Their work is like slavery. Yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, this stuff is brutal when it's got to make up for not having a machine. Yeah. And, and this is Marx being a materialist, so yeah. he hasn't really gone into... He's touched lightly in a couple places about stuff that's outside of the system working perfectly. But he's mostly staying in the system's working perfectly, it's brutal, and he's giving examples. And so here's talking about, yeah, I mean, like you are saying, the whole section is on it. And, uh, you know, he's touching on these, these kids being beat. Like, get, you know, get in line, work more. Yeah. Because they, they have to keep up their efficiency. And this is, these guys are alienated. They're kids. They're overworked. It's just not working. No, it's not. So um, Then finally goes, the passage of modern manufacture and domestic industry into modern mechanical industry. Uh, I'm not sure if that's a total passage, as we talked about. <laughs> uh, the hastening of this revolution by the application of factory acts to those industries. So this is saying, you know, my policies do have some effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says, the cheaper of late cheapening the labor power by sheer abuse of the labor of women and children, by sheer robbery of every normal condition requisite of working and living, and by sheer brutality of overwork and night work, meets at last with the natural obstacles that cannot be overstepped. So also, when based on these methods, do the cheapening of commodities and capital's exploitation in general. So soon as the point that this is last reached, and it takes many years, so he's saying this takes a long, I mean, you're not going to see this overnight. No. You know, you know it takes a while. The hour has struck for the introduction of machinery, and for thenceforth the rapid rapid conversion of the scattered domestic industries and also of manufacturers into factory industries. This is the sweatshops going from hand sewing to sewing machines. Mm -hmm. Um, The rest is pretty acute. Uh, That's the last thing I want for a while. I am going to jump down to a couple more things in there. Yeah. Uh, he talked about the Industrial Revolution takes place spontaneously, is artificially helped by the extension of the factory acts and all the industries in which women, young persons, and children are employed. The compulsory regulation of the working day in regards to length pauses, beginning, and end the system of relays of children. The exclusion of all children under a certain age necessitate, on one hand, more machinery. So he's talking about how things are getting a little cyclical. The machinery 
derives these regulations, derives machinery, yep. derives regulations. Uh, then he goes on, and he was talking about the um, impossibilities of earthenware manufacturers. Uh, the possibilities was under quotes. He says, in spite of every prophe- prophecy, so that the prophecy is like the people saying, well, you know, the companies can't do this, companies can't do this, we'll yep. lose all our money. Uh, the cost price of earthenware did not rise, but the quantity produced did, and such to an extent that the export of 12 months ending in December of 1865 exceeded its value. So he's saying, wow, these capitalists are, are saying all these costs will go up and it cost you. You can't really pay your workers. You'd never be able to afford meals at the restaurant. We'd all go out of business. And strangely, in spite of all those things, when they were forced to pay people more, that didn't happen. But they produced a bunch more <laughs> and so much that they couldn't even sell it. They were, like, looking to sell it. That's odd. Weird. Weird. Um, and then, let's see, he was talking about the factory access. Uh, this is a quote from a report again. The inconveniences we expect to arise from the introduction of the factory acts into our branch of manufacture, I am happy to say, have not arisen. We do not find the production at all interfered with. In short, we produce more in the same time. So, again, he's saying the factory acts, you know, I, they, they weren't blowing up these businesses like these no. these guys will always say because they're greedy for more pocket money. And he continues on his own thing. It is evident that the English legislature, which is certainly no one will venture to reproach with a big overdose of genius. <laughs> these guys are not smart. Uh, has been led by experience to the conclusion that a simple compulsory law is sufficient to enact away all of the so-called impediments opposed by the nature of the process to the restriction of the regulation of the working day. So he's saying, you know, we'll just make a law so that we're not really pressing the day and things will turn out okay. But I like how he mentions that the English literature, that no one will say they're geniuses. Because that's one thing that people don't think about the conspiracies. Like, no one thinks the government's full of geniuses. No, they're dumbasses. But it's all trial and error. They yeah. just throw a bunch of stuff at the wall, see which sticks, and keeps using what <laughs> sticks. That's why they're so good at this. I mean, propaganda isn't because you're gullible or because no. they're geniuses. It's because they've just flooded you with volume, and then the stuff that they saw works, they flooded you with again. <laughs> Better. More enhanced. More enhanced. Brondo, now with more electrolytes. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> All right, so now we're in Section 9. It says, The Factory Act, sanitary and educational clauses of the same, and their general extension in England. Again, there's some acute stuff here, but there's stuff I want to highlight. Yeah. So pretty early, he says, Apart from their wording, which makes it easy for the capitalists to evade them, the sanitary clauses are extremely meager, Mm -hmm. and in fact limited to provisions for whitewashing the walls, for ensuring cleanliness and some other matters, for ventilation, big deal, yeah. and for protection against dangerous machinery. And the third book, we shall return again. And I, I have not Aww. read the third book. No, no one has. It's okay. I, we I, all say we have. Yeah, it, it would be cool one day, but I, I think he died in the middle of writing it. He did. So I, I don't know how complete it is. But apparently he had like four books laid out. So he only wrote like two and a half. Uh, but in the third book, we should return to the fanatical opposition of the masters to those clauses which are employed upon them, the slight expenditure of appliances protecting the limbs of workpeople, and an opposition through a fresh glaring light and the free trade dogma, according to which in society with conflicting interests, each individual necessarily furthers the common will, 
wheel by seeking nothing but his own personal advantage. Jesus so, Christ, did Ayn Rand write that last fucking yeah, sentence? I, the... I want you to realize this is this is the Heritage Foundation was around Good in the 1860s. Lord. I swear to God, they were around in the 1860s. The fucking Koch brothers were around in the 1860s. And if I actually read the third book of this Das Kapital, if it's in the part of it he wrote before he died, I'm gonna read Marx Rip on the Koch brothers. I swear to fucking God, this I'm gonna read insane. it. I pumped. I would have read Marx Rip on the Koch brothers. There is literally it's just nothing has changed. Nothing, nothing. changes. They've been saying I the same goddamn thing for 200 fucking years. <laughs> Holy shit. I want to read Mark's Rip on the Coke Brothers, so we will have to do two and three at some point. Yeah. This, this is a long enough book. We'll push that off after a few books. Um, but he goes, paltry as the educational clauses of the act appear on the whole, yet they proclaim the elementary education to be indispensable condition of the employment of children. Success of those clauses have proved the first time the possibility of combining education and gymnastics oh, yeah. with manual labor, and consequently combining manual labor with education and gymnastics. I love that. It's, it's, well, and this is something, this is interesting because you see that. There is, it, it is a... Uh, there is a, a, a the Soviet Union yeah. had a very big focus on integrating gymnastics into all aspects of their education. This was yeah. something. There was a, there was something. Yeah, well, we, we use physical education now too. I mean, we do. Was a cute form of physical education. Yes. So that that's important. Uh, I think what Marx was getting at here was the integration with business. How how the the Factory Act is going to make sure these kids are educated. Mm -hmm. So the businesses are going to make sure this education is just helping them work. Helping them work. And that's something you you see that there's like calisthenics in some I think in some Asian cultures. I think in Japan especially they yeah. they integrate a lot of like calisthenics and stuff like that into the work day and mm -hmm. and and well you even see this like you know your job will train you will pay for classes to go to to training and oh they're giving you an education no they're just making you train for them and yeah. claiming it's an education you know or when they'll do tuition reimbursement uh, other than the scheme to, to trap you into debt there that's also just to make you a more skilled worker when they need more skilled workers that way they lower the value of skilled workers as we talked about earlier yeah uh he jumps down a little later. He says, modern industry, as we've seen, sweeps away by technical means the manufacturing division of labor under which each man is bound hand and foot for life to a single detail operation. At the same time, the capitalistic form of the industry reproduces the same division of labor in a still more monstrous shape in the factory proper. By converting the workman into a living appendage of the machine and everywhere outside of the factory, partly by sporadic use of machinery and machine workers, partly by reestablishing the division of labor on a fresh basis by the general introduction of labor of women and children and cheap, unskilled labor. So that's a little redundant from earlier, but I wanted to point that out because he's talking about the cycle of, of sending people in and out. You know, if you fire people and hire new people in and fire people and hire new people in, you could do it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper each time. And the machine, especially in the factory where you're appendage of the machine, allows you to do that because the people are more dispensable. Um, down a little farther, uh, let's see. We have seen how this absolute contradiction between the technical necessities of modern industry and the social character inherent in its capitalistic form dispels all fixity and security of the situation of the laborer. How it constantly threatens by taking away the instruments of labor to snatch from his hands the means of subsistence and by suppressing his detail function to make him superfluous. We've seen, too, how this antagonism vents its rage in the creation of the monstrosity, an industrial reserve army, this theme unemployed, mm -hmm. kept in misery in order to always be at the disposal of the capital. 
and incessant human sacrifices from among the working class in the most reckless squandering of labor power and the devastation caused by a social anarchy which turns every economic progress into a social calamity. Uh, you know, he used some big words, he used some old tiny talk, but I, I don't think that's too much for people. I think that was pretty succinct. Yeah! Yeah, I'd say that gets it. I, I, that, that's very that's very on point, Marks. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Carl. Um, fuck you, capitalist. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> uh, let's see. He was talking about the blue books on the mines. Those were some good reports, but the only thing I wanted to take away from the blue books was he said the whole farce is too characteristic of the spirit of capital. Not to call for a few extracts of this report, mm. for the sake of its consciousness, I've classified them. I may also add every question and its answer are numbered by the English blue books. And he talks about, number one was the employ, uh, employment mines in the boys of 10 years and upwards. And uh, he was saying in those mines there were lots of miners under the age of 14 when that was supposed to be the age. Uh, he goes on to education, and he says, The working miners wanted a law of compulsory education on their children as in factories. They declare the clauses of Acts of 1860, which require a school certificate to be obtained for, before employing the boys of 10 or 12 years of age to be quite illusory. To be quite illusory, yeah, and that's the real age they're hiring them. Uh, the examination of the witness is a subject is truly droll. And then in the quote it says, It is the act required more against the masters or against the parents. Or is it the act more against the masters or the parents? It is required against both, I think. And this is a conversation back and forth. And it says, you, you cannot say whether it's required against one more than the other? No, I can hardly answer that question. Does there appear to be any desire on the employee of the employers that the boys should not have such hours as to enable them to go to the school? No, the hours are never shortened for that purpose. Should you say that the colliers generally improve their education? Have you any instances of men who have, since they've begun work, greatly improved their education? Do they not rather go back? Do they not lose the advantage they've gained? They generally become worse. They don't improve. They acquire bad habits. They get on to drinking and gambling and such the like, and they go to completely wreck. So it's saying they're in a report and they're interviewing guy, and he's saying, yeah, you know, I mean, this is kind of more on the parents and the masters. The time's not getting cut out for the kids, and it's stressing them out, and they're they're just falling apart. Yeah. Um, and at the very end of this report, it says, some of them, the boys, cannot read and write at all. The yeah. <laughs> it says the majority of them cannot. The majority of the men cannot. So they're doing the school thing, and they're not even coming out literate. No. It's, 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 it's literally just the illusion of, it's the TSA. Yeah. It's the illusion that we're doing something when every you know measurable thing says it does nothing. But it makes you feel better, and, and, and so you do it. Yeah. Um, then it goes on to the employment of women and how they're supposed to be doing different work. Yeah. They're winding up in the mines, exactly. too. Exactly. I'm about to say. Um, and then the last one is the quarters inquests. So they're going and talking about the dead people. Oh, that's not the last one. There's a few more, but that's the big one. Yeah. With regard to the coroner's inquest in your district, have the workmen the confidence in proceedings to the inquest when accidents occur? No, they have not. So they're saying, you know, do they even check if no. it's, uh, how, why they died? No. no. It says, why not? Chiefly because the men are generally chosen are men who know nothing about the mines and such the like. So they're saying the people that go out, and, and, and that's pretty well what it goes down to, um, the capitalist doesn't want the liability, so they're going to have someone inspect the body, like these the coroners are going to question it, yep. and they're going to find people that don't know what's going on <laughs> in the mines. That way they can't go, oh, no, the coal from this gas did this. Yes. They just go, 
I don't know. They suffocated. He died. He died. He died. That sucks. <laughs> Shit fell on his head. Oh, what man. What do you want? <laughs> um, the next section, of course, uh, false weights and measures, and that's talking about they're they're paid by how much weight comes out of their mind. But, but they, you can manipulate that in yeah. so many different ways. It's Ooh, not they get, so they're screwing them. They're undermining them. Wage and theft. It, and then the exp- expansions of the mines. And um, so he was talking about it's a lot more than explosions that were hurting people. It yeah. was like, you know, stuff the inspectors missed, uh, collapses, things like that. Um, that's a big, big, big old interview. Yeah. But that, that was that was a section I that, really wanted to, to kind of highlight that this is the manifest of the, the, the law is not doing shit. Exactly. And that it is a good, I, if there's a point that I'd say I'd recommend going through and reading, we're not going to read it here because it's literally, I mean, it's like just doing a radio play. It's not really yeah, elucidating I mean, it's, it's hard the fact. to read because it's hard to say one person other slow it down. It, read that section, though. Read that read, section read because that. it is. It does a good job of giving you contem- contemporaneous, in the moment, this is what was happening, this is what people were saying on the ground, and that's important to understanding what he's trying to get at. Yeah. Um, section 10, and this is the last section, finally, of this giant chapter, <laughs> uh, is modern industry and agriculture. Yes. And one thing in the first paragraph, it says, in the United States, as of yet, virtually, only virtually that agricultural machines replace laborers. In other words, they allow the cultivation by the farmer of a larger surface, mm-hmm. but don't actually expel the laborers that are employed. So they're not laying off people there, but this machinery that's supposed to make stuff so much better is it, not doing that. <laughs> and Yeah, and it's... It, the United States, it was interesting, because the United States at the time that Marx was writing this for context, it, this was, these machines yeah. were being produced and created in England. Yeah. They were only being used in America because in England you have this, I mean, look at just size comparisons. England has, if you employ one of these massive combines in England, you have to lay off so much of your workforce because there's so little ground to till that it's impractical. So there was this saying, you know, the the machines are made in, you know, they're made in England, used in America. It's because we were the only ones that could effectively use them. And still keep that fun rate of exploitation where it needs to be and keep enough people employed to, to make yeah. it worthwhile. Yeah, and what I want to highlight there, other than the clever tying of the United States, and of course this is right after the Civil War, so he yes. was also talking a little bit about the Jim Crow era, and obviously he didn't know much about how the 13th Amendment was immediately abused to, for prison labor. Um, but something I'm going to there is, is reiterating back. You know, I mean, we talked about layoffs before, yep. and we see that very much in the modern times, but layoffs aren't the only issue. Um, when they want to make your work more efficient, one thing they like to do is fire people and then bring more people in. They only fire people and they have them stay fired and go into this surplus of, of work that wants to get in there if they can't sell any more. Yep. If they can't get any more money off the same amount of commodities so they can't produce more, then they're only looking at their, their rate of value. If they can cut down their, their rate and then turn around with that lower rate and still make more... That's making more money. Yep. Um, so it's saying, you know, these machines that are supposed to make everybody's job easier, we've gone through how it lays them off, makes them less valuable, all that stuff. But in the end, he's saying a lot of times these machines, if you're not seeing these layoffs, they're not even cutting down the labor. They're just sucking more more production out of you. And uh, that's exactly what he saw in agriculture. Uh, I skipped most of the rest of it because it's mostly very, very short section, and yeah. it's pretty dated. But I love the last sentence. He says, Capitalist production therefore develops technology and the combining together of various processes under the social whole only by sapping the original source of all wealth, soil, and the laborer. 
And this, again, kind of goes back to this the whole rest of that section. It does, moreover, all progress in capital agriculture is a process in the art not only of robbing the worker, but of robbing the soil. All progress in increasing the fertility of the soil for a given time is progress towards ruining the more long-lasting sources of that fertility. The more a country proceeds from large-scale industry as the background, as is the case in the United States, the more rapid this process of destruction. Marx is very, very, very clearly articulating the look the only way capitalists work in in agriculture and when it comes to you know relation to the you know the earth and and our natural resources is they're going to exploit it till it breaks yeah it's the only way they know how there is nothing else that works in their system for it there is no sustainable model for capitalism it doesn't exist so the quicker you go to this version of capitalism the quicker you're going to destroy everything yeah and and again i did i mean i'm glad you expanded on it but i i really want to focus on the last sentence because the way it ends you know the sources of all wealth are the soil and the labor and the soil is very particular to ab- agriculture but it's really the earth yeah <laughs> you know and we talked about the global warming the yeah. space projects they're fucking sucking the planet dry and you're the other victim yep you know it, it, it's just it's something capitalism does it, it will suck the planet and it will suck you dry. And it will not stop until there's nothing standing in its way. It will not stop until it's done. Yeah. And it's never done. Well, until we make it done. Until we make it done. We can make it done. <laughs> we can make it done. But it's never done if we leave it to its own. No, no. Left to its own devices, it does not. There's no equilibrium in capitalism. It doesn't exist. It is a, no. it is a system that is by nature designed on booms, on busts, on on, on rest, on on fluctuations. And, and constant and progress. It, it, and it, not it, progress for the betterment, progress for the enrichment of the few. Yes. It does not ever hit equilibrium in a way that will sustain itself. Yeah. Um, so something now we're down to the 25 pages of footnotes, and there was one you wanted to touch on. There, well, and again, I, I think this is good for... I think this is one that we're going to want to get to as we go, but I think the footnote of relevance is footnote four, and I think... Oh, my God, i got to scroll too far. And this is a, a chapter with, like, 300 footnotes. It so is a chapter with 300 footnotes, and I'm going back to the very, very <laughs> beginning. And this is, again, I feel like this is unto... This is not so specific to chapter 15. No, where it's needed to, like, relate where the footnote exactly. is. Exactly. read it on its own. Read right? it on its own. But, but footnote four is essentially Marx going into... It, this is where you get this concept that what Marx was doing in capital so far to this point, Marx is not exactly outlining communism. He's not outlining a system. He's not outlining even, you know, the concept that one follows from the other. This, this concept that we talk about that, you know, there's you, you, everything's dialectically involved. You know, you go to feudalism, you go to, you know, feudalism gets replaced by capitalism. Capitalism gets replaced by socialism. Uh, there's no like step by, this is not like a step-by-step guide for that. I, I don't know if you've been following along, but in, we've been doing this for, for how many hours now? And there, we, we haven't hit that fun, there is no, and this is how you do communism, now have fun. Um, but this footnote is one of the more elucidating parts where it kind of outlines how he views technology and how he views what we're, you know, what what's going on here in general. How have I not, oh my God, is this chapter really that long? Jesus Christ. Before his time, so um, you want to down to a critical history of technology. Yes, trying to would show how little any of the interventions of the 18th century are the work of a single individual. Yes, hitherto there is no such book. Darwin has interested us in the history of nature's technology, i.e., the formation of the organs of plants and animals, which organs serve as instruments of production for sustaining Jesus. life. Does not the history of the productive organs of man, of organs that are material basis of all social organization, deserve equal attention? 
And would not such a history be easier to compile since, as Vico says, human history differs from natural history and that we have made the former but not the latter. So again, this is going into, there is this theory uh, that you can't understand nature. You can't understand the way the universe works. Trying to understand evolution is, well, but it's it's mysterious and natural and unknowable and, and we're just kind of throwing darts at a board and and here we're saying but well, no but the study of technology the study of human you know advancement in, in technology technology is it's created by humans it's eminently understandable we have to understand it we did it um and so marx is kind of like well where's where's the history of this where is you know if, if all this technological advancement is so good where is the from a to b how do you explain where it went and and what it happened um and so you get to then, uh, even a history of religion that is written in abstraction from this material basis is uncritical. It is in reality much easier to discover by analysis the earthly kernel of the misty creations of religion than to do the opposite, i.e. develop from the actual given relations of life in the forms which those have been apotheosized. The latter method is the only scientific one. The weakness of the abstract materialism of natural science, a materialism which excludes the historical process, are immediately evident from the abstract and ideological concepts expressed by its spokesmen whenever they have ventured beyond the bounds of their own speciality. Marx wants you to look critically at the history of technology and stop attributing technology to these individual inventors. To these individual actors. So again, the, the, the sentence that is critical, a critical history of technology would show how little of any of the inventions of the 18th century are the work of a single individual. The cotton gin, the, 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 the printing, pr all of these things, the, all of these things that you attribute to, well, this guy invented that through his own power. No, capitalism invented that. Capitalism drove the need for that. Well, why? Why did that get invented? It got invented because we hit a line where we couldn't produce anymore until we improved this process. And then this this need arose and we, we solved it. And you do that over and over. He, he's comparing it to Darwin, and that's insanely interesting because Darwin, the assumption is, is that everything just kind of goes to suit its environment. You, you, you specialize to do the thing you're best at. And that happens not because someone manually chose or you know, actively chose it to happen. It happens because the circumstances around it dictate this is what we need to do. He thinks technology works basically the same way. That it's going to naturally come about in order to solve a problem. Whether it's this guy, that guy, or the other guy that comes about it. It's not a person. It's, it's society as a whole and it's hitting a wall where... There is only one way to solve this problem. The wheel is only going to get invented because there's a problem of moving things and the wheel is the way you fix that. And so if you go to that model, capitalism has a way, you know, there, there's going to be a way to solve it in the sense that this is kind of the, 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 the footnote that people use a lot to show this. It's kind of him trying to apply dialectics to the history of technology of, okay, well, we got this, and then we, well, how do we get forward? What's the next, what's the internal contradiction, and how do we get through that? You know, that's, uh, oh, sorry. Um, that's, that's interesting, because my mind, I'm staring at a computer right now. Yeah. And computers were original created to solve math problems more quickly and accurately so we could launch things through the air. Mm hmm that's why the military came up with them. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's an interesting thing to think. This is, yeah, this is, and this is a very, very big point, too, when they talk about, again, a critical history of technology would show how little any of these inventions 
are the work of a single individual. As yet, such a book does not exist. It, it needs to, and I don't think it does to this point still. Yeah. But this is, again, that argument that, well, you need capitalism. Capitalism, the capitalist is what's driving it. Capitalism has this fetishization of capitalists, of Rockefellers, of Carnegie's, of, of, of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. It fetishizes the individual above the society. And that's supposedly why they deserve to be rich is a big time argument too. Which is it's the underpinning of everything that there's some uniqueness, there's some uh, there's some better quality, there's some anything about them that makes them unique and puts them in this position they're in. No, is basically Marx's argument is no, that's not it. Yeah. That is, these are problems that that once the problem is there, who comes up with the solution is irrelevant. But it, it is going to get there as a result of of. You know, moving forward organically, there is an evolution to it that is I, applicable. I really, I would like to, to not necessarily now because we're two hours and forty five no. minutes into this, but I would like to hash that out more because that's an interesting thought. Marx is a materialist, and something people usually get mixed up is materialism and essentialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a big thing about materialism is is understanding the back and forth, right? The environment creates the idea, the idea alters the environment, and then the environment creates a new idea. So it's not this divine thing from the sky that changes the world, but it's not essentialism. It's not like the environment just does it on its own. There's some intervention there where the environment has a problem, and there's going to be one of multiple solutions or entered crisis. And which one of those solutions or entered crisis is based on the ideas of the people that the environment creates. So none of it happens without the environment. The environment is the big dictator. Um, Marx talks about a base and a superstructure, mm-hmm. right? Um, I mean, this is the difference between it and idealism. But it's not like there's no ideas. You still, you still do pick which of this small window of past the environment dictated from ideas. And yes, the ideas are also coming from brains that are trained in a certain way because of the environment. But they're still coming from brains. So I wonder how much Marx is venturing away from that with this technology idea that's a really well, really it's, interesting thing and it's very and there, i think this sentence may may tie that in a little bit so technology reveals the active relation of man to nature the direct process of the production of his life and thereby it also lays bare the process of the production of the social relations of his life and of the mental conceptions that flow from those relations. Yeah, so, and that, that's true. I mean, that's a very materialist thing. Like, your thoughts are based on, more, you know, in you, the, you think a certain way because you're American, because you're so mm-hmm. wealthy, because... And you see that in the real world, right? I mean, like, poor people have trouble budgeting because they're used to, like, I have to balance these bills and i got to worry about eating tomorrow, so I'm not good at planning yeah. out savings. I'm never going to be good at planning out savings why people win the lottery and then they just go fucking yeah. bankrupt. You know, it, it, because that, that's, they've, they've trained themselves for the environment. So you see that on a cute individual level. And really, the point is in a lasting, large systemic level, not necessarily individual. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the environment creates the minds, but the minds are, are, are what get to alter it back. It doesn't just mm-hmm. alter itself. It's not like a self-perpetuating machine. Yeah. And, that so. show, and, our, and we express that as humans. We, we express that through technology. Our yeah. technology is how we evolve. Our evolution is through... It's, it's, in, it's intra-species evolution, mm-hmm. which is what makes humans unique from other animals. Yes, and it shows how we, what we value, what we want, what we're, what we're shooting for, and that's always going to be... So it's going to change. It's not like humans... It's what makes us uniquely that. It's why you can go to socialism, and you're not all of a sudden being socialist doesn't 
destroy the co- inventions happened before Adam Smith, guys. Oh, we, you're, you're you're seizing the means of production. You're yeah, not, you're not destroying. You're the not breaking. Yeah, we we're not going and breaking the machines. <laughs> we're just finding a way to use them we're, in a more egalitarian way. We're not destroying the machines. We're killing the capitalists and handing yeah. the machines to the workers. Yes, it's it's, it's and it's, again, the capitalist is not the one. You know, just the workers. We'll come up with a solution. We will get the yeah. solution. We don't need these Ubermensch leading us into the future. No. Be these unique, you know. Even even in the mystical world that that liberals dream up of supply and demand, the capitalist wouldn't be needed for that demand. There would still be the demand, and the workers yeah. could figure that out. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so there's no no argument inside liberalism's delusions or outside in the real world where liberalism makes sense. It just doesn't work. So, yeah. Friends don't let friends go be liberal. (laughs) There you go. And that has been chapter 15. Oh, my goodness. This was an epic. This was was a movie. This was the Gilgamesh of chapters. This was was a movie that had to be split into two VHS tapes and sold in one package. God, this is the Titanic of podcasts. (laughs) Holy shit. Tell me, like, one of your French girls. Oh, Jesus. Fuck you. (laughs) Fourier is coming up later. I don't know. I can't. My brain's broken. All right, guys. Well, this has been Mark's Madness. I I will warn you, too. Um, going through here, our next ten chapters are really going to be kind of essentially a build-up to chapter 25. Yeah, yeah, he does that. Things go interestingly after tw- chapter 25, but through chapter 25, Marx will get really into his, this is if the system worked the way Perfectly. it's said. Yeah. And for for now, he's been very materialistic. He's been able to tie it back to things, and he'll still do that a lot going forward. But you'll notice the tying back to things is going to get more and more diminished, and things are going to get more and more theoretical until about the end of Chapter 25, to where there's some things in Chapter 25 where you're like, that's not actually how it happens (laughs) in the real world. But at that point, he's not even animating the real world, and he'll tell you that. He's animating, this is what the system says it does. And this is the only way that would make sense. And, And the fact that this doesn't coincide with the real world tells you that the system's a lie. So just be wary of some... Bots over the next ten chapters, where you're like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, Good, but um, but you'll notice the overarching. You know, there still won't be holes in the argument. No, and the overarching ideas are are still correct and prescient today. And the reason he can have those ha moments and still not have holes is because he's just arguing. This is what this is what the liberal says is supposed to do. This is what would happen if it does. This is what I've seen in the real world versus what they say, and then this is what we extrapolate what they say. So just realize that after Chapter 15, it starts to get in that that murky territory where the if things work the way liberals said, that gets more and more pronounced. Yeah. <laughs> but after Chapter 25, we'll be free of that. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. <laughs> See? Later. See you later. Thank you, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ladies. And everybody. Oh, yeah. Everybody. Just everybody. 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 Thank you. Everybody.